I don't know if you heard, yesterday there was the cry heard around the world. Don't know how many major TV networks picked up on it. Don't know that you saw anything about it on social media or any news channel. But yesterday, right only about a few miles from the church here, Jessie got a little ahead of herself, fell on the concrete, and scraped her knee. Yes, that was my reaction as I whisked her up. I know it's just a strawberry on the knee, but I whisked her up, and she's crying, and, uh, you know, we, my mind goes this way and the other, and Bethany looks at me and goes, what on earth are you going to be like when it's actually something really bad? And I said, yeah, I know. It's, there's, there's an issue here with some anxiety about a little one. Now, to be clear, Jessie's great, and that little boo-boo led to some of the sweetest cuddles to put her to sleep last night, so it worked out in the end. But here's my point. What are you going to be like when something really bad happens? Oh, man, the anxiety's already there. Church family, we live in a day and age when anxiety is all the rage. When anxiety is the norm, we live, in fact, if you look at studies of Generation Z, which would be the current high school and college student generation, they will be the most, uh, the most uh, medically prescribed generation in history, primarily because of the issue of anxiety. And certainly for any of us, regardless of generation, as you and I look around the world today, there is not a lot of news that does not lead you to anxiety, to worry, to fear. And the reality is, as we've walked into Philippians chapter 4, and we've seen this command at the beginning to stand firm in the Lord, this calling for you and I as a church family made up of individual believers to be an unwavering church. You and I are going to have to do so in the midst of circumstances that drive and would lead us and seek to make us driven and consumed by anxiety. So what are we to do? Well, I invite you to open up your Bibles, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. And let me just remind you as you go to Philippians 4, we are. We are walking through chapter 4 where the call is to stand firm in the Lord, to be grounded convictionally, to be planted, to be securely rooted in the Lord and who He is and what He's about. It impacts what we believe. It impacts how we think. It impacts how we live and move and breathe. And in doing that, we walked through last week what can be a heavy reality, which is if we're going to stand firm unwaveringly, we have to put aside petty conflict. And we walked through that passage over personal conflict between Euodia and Syntyche, and we we even amazed when you realize that this letter was read in one sitting before the church in Philippi, and they just got called out by name. And if that seems heavy, and if that brings things up, look where all of a sudden Paul turns to. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit or your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
If last week somehow we approached and saw this heavy reality of conflict, and even for the, for the church in Philippi, as they would likely, wow, oh my goodness, the conflict was called out. Look at the very next words Paul gives. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He, he issues this command that they not just feel joy, but he issues this command of rejoicing, which is this idea where a person takes intentional time and effort to meditate, to contemplate, to think about, to turn their thoughts to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And all that who he is and what he does means for you and I. And as the person turns and, and is consumed with Christ... The act of rejoicing, what the Holy Spirit does within the believer, is produce joy. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. He says, seek and, and do this. Turn your thoughts to the person and work of Christ always, at all times, in all circumstances. And he says, it's so important, church in Philippi. I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Rejoice. I'm not suggesting it. It is an imperative command in the active voice, meaning each individual must make a choice to rejoice. They will never just accidentally rejoice. It's a present tense, meaning that it should mark the life of believers at all times. So church family, as we seek to stand firm, as we seek to be an unwavering church, here's the reality. We must rejoice. We must rejoice. The call on your life and my life as followers of Christ is not simply to be known by Christ and that's it, but we're called to rejoice. We are called in the midst of a heavy world and heavy situations, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of highs and lows. We're called to rejoice at all times. In all ways, it should be the mark of our life. In fact, joy is the mark of a true believer. We're called to take our mind, to set our minds on who Jesus is and what he's done, which just on a side note will be really hard for you and I to do if we're highly illiterate with his word. Because the primary way we know who he is and what he's done is through the word. So as we read the Word, as we understand the Word, we see who He is and, and understand this action of rejoicing. It's not something that has to be done over some 30-minute stretch. This is very simply, we, we find ourselves in any given situation. Maybe we find ourselves in a situation where directly around us, things are just chaotic. Maybe some of your spring breaks were chaotic, bouncing here, this over there. What do we do now? Maybe that chaos is all of a sudden upset and turned over schedules, and you pause for a brief moment and you remember, who is Jesus? He is, he's faithful and true, which means in the midst of this chaos where I can't see one way or the other, he's faithful. He's faithful to be with me. He's faithful to guide me. He's faithful to do what he said he'd do. It means in moments when all of a sudden you sense just the assault of the enemy seeking to discourage you, you remember, wait a minute, this discouragement that says, look at how rough you are. Look, you can't get this in order. You're not disciplined enough here. You're not this. Why would Jesus want to meet with you? Wait a second. It says that in Jesus, he has seated me in the heavenly places. And you start to think on that and 
This is what rejoicing is in all times, in all circumstances. And understand, as Paul writes the double command to rejoice, he does so chained to a Roman soldier under house arrest, where he's been at this point for likely two years. He doesn't do so as a free man where everything's going well, but he does so as a man in chains. And he's calling a church living in the mini-Rome, a church that undoubtedly is facing government opposition for its faith in the one Lord Jesus, not Caesar. A church that inwardly is facing conflict. A church that likely is being opposed by family. A church that would have financial hardships because the city wouldn't support. And we know from elsewhere where Paul talks about their generosity, he speaks about those churches in Macedonia they gave, though they had very little. He's not writing a church that has everything easy to rejoice. He's writing a church, he says, you in the midst of all these circumstances rejoice. And let me say it again, rejoice, rejoice always. There is no time where joy is not, where rejoicing is not to be taken place. And this is what's beautiful, church family. Because if you and I are called to rejoice always, it means that joy is not exclusive from sorrow and sadness. Because joy is not happiness. Joy is not just feeling really glad about things. Joy is a certain joy that springs from who the Lord is, which means that I can be on my knees in grief and know His joy. It's not one or the other. I can know his joy. His joy is superseding. But understand, rejoicing is not simply counting our blessings. There's a place for counting blessings. There's a thanks for thanks, a place for thanksgiving. We'll see that in a few verses here. Rejoicing is not just being thankful for various things. It's specifically the act of thinking on who Jesus is and what he's done. Let me give you an example of, of what I mean by, by rejoicing. Earlier this week, I had a case of what my uh, college roommate informed me is labeled inanimate object rage. I was trying to put up a shelf in, a guest, in the guest room, and I found the stud. I've got the right screw that I've put in all the other shelves with and not had any problems. And as I'm going to screw the screw in, it catches and won't, won't turn anymore. And as it catches, it throws my drill off, and there's now eight different holes in the sheetrock. <laughs> And what was intended to be a simple organizational thing has now become a disaster. And I might not have done the best with not getting frustrated by it. Didn't get frustrated at Jesse or Bethany, but I might have hit the ladder in inanimate object rage. <laughs> now I give you that confession to say, you come down to sitting down and here I am trying to work and prepare and pray through today's sermon. And I can hear the enemy whisper, well, what kind of fool are you for doing that, Wes? Look at how absolutely absurd. What kind of maturity are you that you let us screw? Da, 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 and all these things. And all of a sudden, there's a discouragement there. Rejoicing in that moment looked like pausing for a second and remembering, Lord, there's been some, some, some rough lows of tired this week. But your word tells me that you are faithful to finish what you started in me. 
And if you're faithful to finish what you started in me, then I cannot sit here. If there's something I need to confess, convict me, I will confess it. But I'm not going to sit here and listen to the voice of the enemy. Instead, I will sit here and rejoice in the fact that you're faithful to finish what you started even when the person you're working in has inanimate object rage. (laughs) And as I sit there and take my thoughts captive in that brief moment and rejoice in who he is and what he does, joy fills my heart from the Holy Spirit. This is what rejoicing is. We are to rejoice. What are we to do in being an unwavering church and seeking to stand firm in the Lord? We are to rejoice always in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. But he goes beyond there. He says, let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. Now, your Bible may say gentle. Your Bible may say forbearing. Forbearing is a word we don't use often. It's an English word that that means uh, patient and restrained. And it's, it's been maybe, and, and, and then there's the idea of gentle, which carries a different connotation in English, and both are trying to define a Greek word that's not used often in the New Testament, and is a word that really is hard to define in a single English word, because here's what this word means in the original language. It means that you and I do not insist on every right of the letter of law. It means we are yielding, we are courteous, we are tolerant. It was described by Aristotle as, as, as this, the person who is gentle is the one who by choice and habit does what is equitable and does not stand on his rights unduly, but is content to receive a smaller share although he has the law on his side. It's the idea that though something has been done to me that is wrong, Rather than, than trading punch for punch, rather than, than, than going back at it, what I do is I turn the other cheek and I show a patient, gentle restraint, even though I'm in the right. And Paul says, church in Philippi, church that's facing uh, opposition, church that's facing suffering, as people spit on you, as people smear your name, as people gossip about you, as, as people share falsehoods, don't get dragged in. Instead, be gentle to, and notice what it says there, church family. Did you catch that? To all men. All men means, don't just, I'm not just telling you, Philippians, be gentle to one another in the church. I'm telling you, every person that you come in contact with, they need to know your gentleness. That means every person, saved, not saved, friend, enemy, spouse, child, parent, sibling, co-worker, boss, employee, name, name a relationship, name a person. He says, let your gentle spirit be made known, be made known there. By the way, it's a command in the strongest tense in Greek. It's an aorist imperative. It's not just a command, but it's a command with a sense of urgency and importance. Let it be known, literally meaning people need to actually experience you showing them gentleness, not just talking about how we ought to be gentle. That term gentleness, it's it's throughout Scripture. It's a characteristic of Christ. It's a qualification in 1 Timothy for pastoral or deacon leadership in the church. 
James 3 says that the wisdom from above, the wisdom from God is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. If we truly have wisdom from above, it means we live it out with gentleness. The key to being able to do it is found in 1 Peter 2. We're speaking about Christ who is gentle. It says, while being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. While suffering, he didn't utter threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. The key for you and I to be able to treat people with gentleness is that we're not counting on the letter of the law for our justice. We are instead counting on the Lord, the righteous judge. Which ties in with what he says. You catch that? Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. The Lord is near, both for you and I as believers in Christ, the Lord is near. He's always with us. But really there it's referencing the fact that the Lord's return is near. His return is nigh. He's coming soon. And in light of the fact that he's coming soon, in light of the fact that he will act in justice, in light of the fact that he will set all things right, that he will carry out his just and righteous standard, show your gentle spirit to all men. Show your gentle spirit to all men. What do we mean? What does that look like? See, church family, if we're going to stand firm in the Lord, it means as we relate and live and move and breathe in the world, we must demonstrate gentleness to all. It's going to mean dying to self. We've seen in the book of Philippians, humility is to mark our lives. It's going to demand humility and not living a life that's about me in order to face situations where perhaps by letter of the law we have been wrong, but we choose not to repay insult for insult, punch for punch, blow for blow. But instead we demonstrate a gentleness, a grace, and a mercy. said in one ancient text, let us test the person with insult and torture so that we may find out how gentle they are. You see, trial, hardship, Suffering, frustration, people who attack, all will come and test and reveal how gentle you and I are. It means, church family, you and I don't have to be right all the time, even if we are. (laughs) Think about that with a spouse. Spouse says, I don't know what. You know this is right. But instead of making some big to-do about it, just let it go. Or maybe it's a situation where you're, you're an employer and you have an employee under you, and maybe that employee's done something that rubs you the wrong way, and rather than instantly pulling in and blowing them up, you choose to be patient and go, you know, I'm not sure they meant to do that. Let me, let me demonstrate a, a gentleness here and not just come in and blow things up. It means maybe someone has gossiped about you and you resist the urge to gossip back. It means maybe you've got a right to just tear into somebody, but you show a grace instead. AKA, think about when someone cuts you off on the highway. We're called to demonstrate gentleness to all 
Yet I fear that oftentimes what has happened in more recent times, especially with social media, is we trade blow for blow, punch for punch with everything we post and we say on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, this, that, and the other. Now understand, gentleness does not mean, church family, that we don't speak truth and we don't seek justice. Okay, gentleness does not mean I see someone over here physically abused, but I'm going to show gentleness and not call the cops. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking gentleness in, in settings where people are gossiping or maybe being ugly with their words and you choose. It's turning the other cheek. There is a place we carry through when it's an issue of morality, of truth. We've got to speak truth. We've got to stand for justice. But what gentleness does in this arena is it changes how we do it. To where instead of shoving the truth of Christ in someone's face, and anger and animosity at the threat they face. Instead, we are able to do it with a humility and a lowliness and a gentleness where if they're turned off, they're turned off by the fact that it's true, not by the fact that we were ugly. Be gentle. Let your gentleness be made known to all men. Why, church family, the Lord is near. If we're going to stand firm, we've got to rejoice. If we're going to stand firm and unwaveringly, we've got to be gentle and show that gentleness to all men. Then look what it says. Be anxious for nothing. Or literally, the translation is in the Greek is, stop continuing to live in anxiety about everything. The language there is, is the idea in the present tense that the, the church in Philippi has been consumed by anxiety. There are things that are driving them. They are wrapped up in anxiety and anxiousness. They are, they are entrapped by some fear and some worry. It's there, and, and Paul's comment is, cut it out. Stop. Stop the anxiousness. Stop the worry. Stop. Be anxious for nothing. Well, what do we mean by being anxious? The word literally means to think moodily or anxiously about something. It means to be overly concerned in a way that is beyond what is appropriate. It's the same word used in Matthew 6 and Luke 12 where Jesus speaks about not, not worrying about what we will eat or where we will live or what we will wear like, like those without Christ do, but instead understand that our Father in heaven knows what we need and will provide. Paul leaves them no room. He says, be anxious for nothing. There's nothing that comes up in life where it would be okay for them to live in anxiety. One theologian has described it as an anxious, harassing care, which is arises in a one who's full of cares, especially about the future, and becomes distracted in mind. To where all of a sudden these cares, these concerns, maybe over things that are, are things that are rightful to be appropriately concerned about, but all of a sudden it's moved out of the realm of appropriate and it's consuming and it's distracting and it's, it's seeking and going in control and, and we, we sit and wonder, well, what were the Philippian church, what did they have to be anxious over? They had to be anxious over many things. They had to be anxious living in Philippi. When would that cart come in? where everyone would be required as a loyal, good patriot of Rome to go into that cart to pay the offering of incense and declare Caesar is Lord. When is that cart coming in town? Because when that cart comes in town, we know that we can't do it. And what are the repercussions going to be? 
They had worries about families who might disown them because instead of now being a proud Philippian citizen of Rome, they would be proud citizens of heaven and heaven would win out over Rome if the two came in conflict. We know Paul and Silas were thrown into prison. We know they were beaten there. We know there would have been a loss of menace and livelihood. They would, they would easily have worries over outward persecution. They would have worries over inward conflict. We don't know. We know it's bad enough Paul addresses it, but you can imagine what is that conflict like, pitting people against this person? What's the anxiety there? We know they were anxious and concerned for personal relationships. They were worried about Paul. They were worried about Epaphroditus back in chapter 2. We know that they even were obviously passionate and concerned about the gospel ministry. There's many things they could be anxious with. No different than there's many things you and I can be anxious with. If you're a child, maybe it's your grades, your friends, the coolness factor. I don't know what the word for today that would be. Maybe it's stress at home. Maybe as a child, it's just a desire for normalcy that... COVID's blown up. Maybe if you're a teenager, you're one of our students, it's not just your grades, but it's your grades and your organizations and your, your resume that you've been told you've got to build for your future so you can get into the best college, so you can get that degree that statistics say you won't use ever for your field of work, but you've got to get that degree so you can get that six-figure job, so you can on down the line, and it all depends on every choice you make right now at 15. And if you don't have a schedule that no adult could handle, Goodness, you're not going to be able to do it. Maybe it's your dating, your peers, your social media, how much people are watching. Maybe you're in the room as a single adult. Maybe it's stress and anxiety over roommates. Maybe it's over love life. When will I meet that person? Will marriage happen? If you're married, maybe it's marriage and children. If you're just an adult, period, it's jobs, finances, it's goodness, world events. Will there be a world in another decade? And in all of that, we've not even talked about, do we, I mean, goodness, it'd be kind of nice if we were somewhat anxious over is, is ministry happening or not. But even then, it can be dangerous. We can be anxious in a way that's inappropriate over ministry. There's many things for you and I to be anxious about, no different than the, than, than the church in Philippi. And Paul's command is clear. It's a command. Do not be anxious. Stop. Do not allow the concern, the fear, the worry to drive. Instead, what are we to do? We're to let our requests be made known to God. Request there is an interesting little word. It's a, it's a word that means you're to take something that is specific and communicate it. And when it says, let your request be made known to God, be made known there is not a suggestion. This is not Paul's suggestion. Hey, command, do not worry. Here's a suggestion of what you should do instead. No, that, that, let it be known. It's a command. Paul's commanding, do not live in anxiety. Instead, I am commanding you, let your requests, let those things, those specific things be made known. How? Well, he tells us how. Through prayer and supplication. Through prayer and supplication. Now, we can get caught up, and some do, in the various words. The reality is Paul's not trying to specify multiple different ways of praying. He's driving at this point. How, are you to, how am I telling you to make your requests known? You're to make your requests known to God through prayer through talking, through supplication, through bringing urgent entreaty to him, and you're to do it in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. You're not just to get there and to ask and ask, but you're to do it with thanksgiving. 
declaring his praise. You say, well, well, pastor, what does that look like? How do I, if we're to be anxious for nothing, there's some really serious things we can be anxious over, things that are weighty, things that are heavy. And okay, I'm supposed to go to God with those in prayer and I can pour those out, but what does it look like to do it with thanksgiving? Well, I got great news for you. There's a whole book with a bunch of Psalms written by David who did it all the time. Listen to Psalm 13. David's facing... Obviously something challenging. Listen how he expresses his request to the Lord. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in the heart all day long? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him. My adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. He's obviously facing a situation where there are enemies, where there are people coming against him. He, he feels like he does not have an answer from the Lord. He's, he's being honest and open with the Lord. Lord, where are you? Where is the answer? Consider, I need you, Lord. But listen where it goes then. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. We see this pattern over and over again, especially in the Psalms written by David. Let your request be made known, but let me also praise the character and goodness of God even before the answer has come. You see, church family, if we're going to stand firm, we cannot stand firm walking in anxiety, fear, and worry. Now, let me be real clear here because of the nature of what today is. When we say anxiety, I mean a way and pattern of thinking where your thoughts and my thoughts are consumed, overly consumed with things. What I do not mean is if your body has a legitimate chemical imbalance that's also addressing. We live in a day and age where all that's in vogue, where this and that. I'm not telling you, if your body has a chemical imbalance, just pray it away. Listen, if you got a headache, take an Advil. You got a fever, take a Tylenol. You got a chemical imbalance, talk to your doctor. And I say that from personal family experience. There is a place for some aspects of what we in English label anxiety for medication. What Scripture's talking about anxiety is for you and I who, who, are, who are of sound body, but who are just consumed with worries of the unknowns and question marks and what will happen and how will I do this and what will be, and, and our thoughts are just consumed and driven to where our eyes, rather than rejoicing, filled with joy, looking upward, are just consumed by what is around us. And the call, if you and I are going to stand firm, is to stop doing that, but instead address what is the anxiety, what is the issue, what is the actual request we have there, and get on our knees and bring it to the Lord. Amen. Earnestly, urgently, worshipfully, with thanksgiving. Why? We, as 1 Peter says, to a group of believers for sure facing even more intense suffering than the Philippians. Cast your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Amen. We've got to turn. We've got to turn. There's a question. Judge the level of anxiety in your life and compare it to the magnitude of your prayer life. Is it out of balance? But it's not just that we pray. Look at what Paul says. Is as we do this, the peace of God, 
which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. The peace of God, that, that serenity, that tranquility, that calmness that is a mark of his character, which then he also gives to his people. How? How does peace come in your life and my life? Through the Holy Spirit who lives within. Through the Spirit's love, joy, peace. Peace is a term throughout Scripture that, that is most often referenced by the Hebrew term shalom. It's the idea of wholeness, of well-being, of restored relationships, of harmony. It speaks of for you and I to have the peace of God when we are justified by grace through faith, when we come to salvation in Christ, that moment where we respond to the Spirit's conviction, where we, where we cry out, where we see that Jesus is who he says he is, he's done what he's done to, to be able to save us and it's good and we, we, we rest in faith on him when that moment of salvation comes where he saves us. It says we have peace with God. Peace. Peace is a calmness, it's a stillness of soul. We're commanded in Colossians 3 to allow God's peace to dwell within us. The Spirit seeks to produce peace. What I don't mean by peace is a feeling of euphoric calm. And for some of you, you may go, well, I never thought it was that way either, but I encounter especially a lot in my generation where we, we think the peace is that if I have peace, it means I won't feel anything else other than just this euphoric calm. That's not what we mean by peace here. By peace, we mean something that is objective, not subjective. It's being rightly related to the Lord. By peace, we mean a tranquility, a stillness of spirit. By peace, we mean all around me, the mountains may be crumbling. I may hear the rumble of the rock. I may feel the wind of the avalanche passing by, but the rock on which I stand is firm. And so in the midst of what is raging around me, there is a calmness that protects my heart and mind, Amen. that place of my innermost being where I think and make volitional decisions. There is a protection of peace that surpasses all comprehension. And it's interesting when you study that, church family, what do we mean by all comprehension? Does it mean there's a peace that's so beyond what you and I could understand? Absolutely, you and I will spend all eternity and never come to the full understanding of God's peace because his peace is beyond full comprehension. But it also really means this, that the peace which God supplies is beyond any plan of man that attempts to bring peace. That the peace which God supplies that will protect our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus is greater than any musing or planning of man that attempts to solve the issue, that attempts to control the situation, that attempts to relieve the anxiety. And the peace of God, it guards, it keeps watch over. It's a military word that meant a garrison looking over. It would have been easy for the Philippian church to hear this word, look out the window and see the Roman guard standing over the gate. How does the peace of God protect you and I, church family? Well, very simple. Psalm 37 says, do not fret. It leads only to evil. You see, when you and I are driven and consumed by anxiety, by worry, by fear, we will never discern and walk the will of God correctly. 
Because anxiety, worry, fear, they're not how the Lord speaks. They're not things of the Lord. Instead, if we are driven, if we allow them to come in, it will only lead us away from God. It will lead us into sin. It will sink us into despair. It will deceive us into trying to fight and take control that's not ours. It'll rot and kill the heart of all that God desires to give. It means our decisions will be driven by fear and anxiety, not by the Spirit. It means the fear and worry and anxiety will whisper half-truths and full lies about the character of God to get us to doubt. But when we take that anxiety, when we, we choose to not be anxious over anything, but in everything and all things, name it. What's all things? Name it. What do you face in life? All things. We take it to the Lord in prayer with thanksgiving. What happens in that process is the Holy Spirit begins to produce the peace of God, which enables you and I in the midst of chaos to think clearly, to see his character correctly, to discern and hear his voice rightly, to take the step on his path and not step off unto the rocking, unsafe, unsettled anxious-ridden ground around us. It's a protection because the peace of God will keep us from making a decision driven by not the Holy Spirit. But notice this, it doesn't just protect us, but it's promised independent of whether or not the request is answered in the way you and I want or not. You and I are told to make the request known to God. The promise is the peace of God. If we will really let the request be made known to God, if we will not just offer up um, half-hearted, casual prayers, but truly come to the Lord in the best words that we know how and to truly lay the burden at his feet. And to lay the burden at his feet may mean every five minutes we got to go back and relay it down. But if we lay the burden at his feet, the promise is... His peace will protect. So think about this practically. Maybe the burden is, should I take this job or not? And maybe I really want this job and I need this job and, and this is the job that is. And Lord, here's my request. I, I really want this job, I, 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 but I, I lay it down to you and I need you real. Here's where the peace comes in and protects. All of a sudden you recognize, you know what, God? You promised to guide my steps. And so rather than me spending the rest of the day trying to figure out should I take or not, you lead me. And, and here's what may happen. Maybe... Maybe the Lord, instead of giving you the job, they give the job to another person. You go, well, what the heck, pastor? You said pray, and, and God didn't give me what I asked for. No, it doesn't say God's going to give you what you ask for. But it says that God's peace is going to protect you, which means maybe God's peace protected you from taking the job that wasn't what he wanted for you. I can testify to this personally. My senior year of college, in the guise of responsibility, became so engrossed and worried and consumed, I couldn't even see it the last semester of, okay, well, I'm going to seminary. How am I going to pay for seminary? I don't want to be that millennial who moves back in with mom and dad and mooches off of them. And, and all of this sounds really good, and none of it's inherently bad. But it consumed me, and I didn't see it, and I didn't lay it down to the Lord, and it and ultimately led to me starting to make decisions driven by anxiety. And praise God. God, that he is faithful. Praise God that the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts. Praise God that God, even when we are not seeing clearly, will step into our life and he will bring discipline. Praise the Lord, he is faithful and true. There's the rejoice. Because if the Lord wasn't faithful and true, I probably wouldn't be your pastor and I certainly wouldn't be married to Bethany. 
because those fears and worries all of a sudden pushed me to think I was supposed to marry and, all, and, and marry this girl who's a sweet, God, God-fearing girl. But because the Lord didn't give his peace there is clearly not who I was supposed to marry. Praise God that the peace of God will guard and I would have seen that more clearly if I had been able to recognize how much anxiety was driving my life and how much I wasn't laying it down in prayer at the feet of God. The peace of God protects. So what do we do, church family? It means we choose not to be anxious, but we pray about everything, everything. There is nothing in our life that God does not desire and seek for us to be prayerful over. We pray about the things that makes us anxious. We pray about this, we pray about that, we pray about all. It's why, church family, in the coming days, we are going to begin uh, uh, focusing and beefing up our 24-7 prayer ministry as a church family. We've got our Monday night prayer meetings. Prayer is vital to the laying down of anxiety. Think about this. Let me just be candid. The world makes me an anxious wreck. I was talking to my dad last night, and I said, Dad, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't ever remember in my lifetime this much chaos globally. And he said, no, I don't think so. And if you want to know what my lifetime is, 1988 to now. But God's given us things to pray in Scripture. Pray for your kings and your rulers and your government officials that you may be able to lead in a peaceful and quiet life. Yet often I find it more easy to be driven by consuming all the news articles of how ancient it is rather than it is to bow down. And in this case, bow down and not just pray over what makes me anxious, but pray the literal things God has commanded in his word to pray. We pray about everything, church family, and there's so much that God has given in his word of how we are to pray what we are to pray. We do it with thanksgiving because even in the darkest of situations, the darkness is not dark to him. Psalm 139. We may be dark to us, but it's not dark to him. We pray with thanksgiving and we know the protection of his incomprehensible peace. Church family, I don't, I, I don't know what the world's going to do, if it's going to get better or worse or not. I, I don't know. What I know is even when things weren't that dramatic seven years ago, Generation Z still was the most anxious generation that ever left because of the pressures of society in this world. Anxiety is not going anywhere. But it will destroy you and I as followers of Christ, and it will destroy us as a church family if we allow it to consume us. But praise the Lord, God has given us and showed us if we are going to stand firm in an unwavering way We have to commit ourselves to rejoicing in the Lord, to being gentle, to showing our gentleness, the gentleness of Christ to all people, and by rejecting anxiety, to let everything be made known to the Lord that his peace would guard, protect, and consume us. The question is, will we? Let's pray. Father, Lord, you know how often and how easy it is for me to not, to not abide by your clear command here. The rate of information in life today is so consuming. That alone 
raises the anxiety, Lord, but you are so clear. You are so clear. God, may we be a people. God, who counter the magnitude, the, the, the mass amount of anxiety that is in our world today that we can experience, that we can feel, that we can know. May we be a people who counter it with the magnitude of falling on our knees, of laying down those cares truly and with thanksgiving at your feet. Because we do rejoice in you, Christ, and we know that you care for us. We know that you have a plan. We know that you are in control. We know that you are faithful and true. We know you will finish what you start. And so, Lord, may we lay down and may we allow our requests to be driven not just by our own personal thought, but by, by your will, by your word. And, Lord, may we be a people that as the world around looks go, that is a people. There is a peace on that person's life when it's good and when it's falling apart, I need to know that peace. Lord, may we be a people who shine your light into this world because we are a people guarded and filled with your peace. So Holy Spirit, however we need to respond today, may we do so in obedience to you. It's in your name I pray, Jesus.